Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. And as always, I'm excited for another fantastic guest. Today, we are going to be speaking with Nicholas Babington, who is a world-renowned futurist speaker and foresight thought leader that mentors leaders to create more connected, curious, and creative teams that embrace futures, futures design to drive more profit and explosive growth. He spent 30 plus years working with leadership at over 300 leading organizations at the front line of foresight, strategy, and disruption, including NASA, United Nations, Google, Microsoft, Intel, WM, United Way, Bayer, Bank of Canada, Rolls-Royce, Procter & Gamble, IDEO, UK Home Office, and many more. And his new book is Facing Our Futures, How Foresight, Futures, Design, and Strategies Create Prosperity and Growth. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks so much. It's fantastic to be here. I have to say, as I'm reading all of these companies on like these amazing companies all over the world, it's fantastic. And I, I'm sure you have so many stories. And as always with my guests, it's going to be me keeping myself structured and focused because there's going to be so much I'm going to want to talk to you about all of this. You know, I, I feel very blessed and, and and lucky to do what I'm doing. You know, I've, I've got a think tank in the futurist.com think tank now. I, I work with these amazing clients and uh, I always joke, you know, I get hired for the jobs where I get fired normally, <laughs> right? So uh, if I was working in advertising or consulting, you know, you have to kind of be buttoned up and you have to, you know, you know, be fairly sort of civil and 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 very polite um, with these clients. These clients want me to be real and uh, to have great conversation. Obviously, we have lots of fun. It obviously is very civil, but we, really, what we do is we get into into the nuts and bolts of where they are today and where they want to be in the next 20, 30, 50 plus years. Yeah, it's amazing, and I'm so glad that you're having these conversations. and And we'll talk more about this, but I already think it says something about the kind of organization they are that they are having this foresight right. into the future. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there, there's it's interesting. There's been some studies that have come out in in the past few years that have shown that the companies that have got vigilance, that have got future preparedness built into their organizations. Um, that they're actually, you know, they're driving like 33% more profit and 200% more growth than, than people that aren't, right? And I always say that you, 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 you've, everyone's got a role to play in creating our futures. Now, that, that's true whether you do something to be an active part of the definition and creation of our futures or whether you're sat back kind of, you know, selling what you're selling or, or doing what you're doing on a normal basis. So your know, non-involvement is creating something as much as doing something. So when I chat to executives and organizations, it's like step up, do this work, upgrade your strategic planning, you know, really supercharge that with foresight and futures thinking. And you know what? Bigger visions, better strategic planning. There's nothing to lose when you do this work. 
Yeah, I absolutely. And I want to even back up for a second. And because even reading your book, I was just fascinated. It, it helped me get to know you better, but just the mind, the way your mind works and uh, fascinated me. And of course, I hear the word futurist and I'm immediately fascinated. But right. take me back to a little bit around your history and what got you into this work. Uh, and you can take me anywhere. You can take me back in childhood. You can take yeah. me back in your career. But to help us understand a little bit and connect the dots around what got you so passionate about this work you're doing. So my father bought me a book at the age of eight uh, called The Osborne Book of the Future. And it, it's this book about the year in 2000 and beyond. And, you know, we'd be living on, on, the, on the moon uh, under the sea. We'd all have wearable computing on our wrists. We kind of got that today. Robots at home, flying cars, the Hyperloop, which is actually a, an older idea from the 70s, even though we're still talking about that now. And it just made me really get excited about technology and science fiction and all that good stuff. Um, fast forward, went to university. I was really into computers as I was a kid as well. I went to university, did applied psychology computing, uh, like focused on things like chaos theory, complexity theory, organizational psychology, but also you know, a very sort of a, a new discipline of artificial intelligence, uh, which has kind of carried me through nicely. And I spent most of my, you know, 25 plus years prior to focusing on futures work um, to really work in data, building out infrastructure, behavioral targeting, getting into the psychology of consumers. And uh, the last, you know, yeah, 10, 10 or so years, I've been focused purely on futures work. And what's interesting, you know, the clients that you listed off and, and lots of others, they come to me and they say, hey, you know, we, we see what you're doing and it's interesting to us. Can you help us sort of open our minds in a way, become more curious? And, you know, I've got clients I've been working with for several years at this point, continually advising projects, you know, doing keynotes, um, doing some speculative fiction, design fiction work. And it, it it's it's a real joy because this is this is my left and right hand sides of my brain working together, you know, to be scientific, you know, how does the world work? And then how do we tell stories about our futures where it can work in a different way, right? Well, and I think that's what's so cool about you in that sweet spot, because sometimes I find people are too much on the left brain or too much on the right brain, and then they're right. not bringing the two and integrating them. And I loved it because as you were talking about all of these things, I always felt the humanity lens to it as well. This podcast is all about humanizing work. And I think right. we have to remember that both of those are, are happening. And um, when we start to think about, I wanted to look at it from two perspectives because our, our podcast guests are of course leaders, but then we have, you know, leaders, people, managers, uh, executives, and then we also have it from the HR and people and culture side. And when we think about looking out to the future, I think there's two vantage points, right? The individual level. And then when we look at the organizational level, and then of course, right. out into communities and things like that. So starting from you doing a lot of work with these organizations, what, what would you like to see more of when it comes to organizations taking more of this future approach? Where do you see some of those gaps? So I, I think a lot of this is around mindset, right? So we, I, I sort of talk about shifting your mindset from what is to what if. So lifting your head up from the books and the spreadsheets and the meetings and the workshops where we're trying to work out the strategy for the next you know, 12, 36 months or whatever. And to try and... In, in in interject with ideas around you know what could what could come next if we make certain decisions today you know really you know practicing curiosity being courageous you know suspending the judgment being wildly creative 
these things aren't typical business skills um, in in a lot of places. So, you know, really working with clients to to consider, you know, the role of places and people and systems and community and inputs, outputs, transformations, and but the the feeling of of how our feet uh, how our futures are going to manifest themselves uh, a future you know enough horizon you know 2040 and beyond that it doesn't seem so close that we can you know work out how everything works but it is far enough away so that we can suspend belief and realize that we've got a huge opportunity to do whatever we need to do to make that happen right yeah and so i love that and then when you think about the individual level and you started to get into this of course when you're talking about mindset um, cause you were talking in the book two different things around beliefs as well. And, um, you know, the human aspect around, yeah, there's positives. And then, you, you know, as humans, how we can sometimes get in our own way as well. So what do you see there at the individual level? So very much say, if we talk about innovation, I mean, back in the day, it was like, let's build an innovation team and have an innovation room where we've got innovative technologies and we're doing innovation <laughs> now. And, you know, it, it ultimately failed and a bunch of money was spent and, and soon, you know, these rooms were abandoned or, you know, it got too expensive to upgrade them and, you know, innovation teams were disbanded and the organizations that really got it and realized that, you know, they couldn't just bring in an innovation company or build an innovation team. They actually had to put innovation in the hearts and minds of every individual. Uh, when I used to work in, in management consultancy back in the day, I used to do something that I called um, floor to board consulting. Uh, so I would, I would ask the people like in, in the offices that were doing work, mostly technical work, how could they make it better? And at the same time, I would start at the board level and ask the same questions and work my way down until I sort of met in the middle. And what you'd find is that individuals at the bottom of an organization had better ideas um, to, to do continuous improvement and to, to highlight challenges uh, more than the people at the top, because people at the top are motivated by profit and loss and, and, and you know, cost bases and working out efficiencies. And they've got a different perspective, the people that are doing the work at the bottom. So, so when I think about individuals, you, you know, you have to really put it in, in their hearts. And, and that's what we have to do with futures work as well. So innovation, look at how we can do things better you know, futures thinking and exploration. It's like, what have you seen today that makes you think that, you know, we're going to be doing something different in 20 years? It's not that we have to do something today that's different, but we have to entertain the idea that things are going to be different, that our vision as a company is going to be challenged maybe, or, or it can be augmented by these things as well. And these individuals can highlight the things that are going to be good decisions today for better outcomes in our futures. And also, you know, bad decisions today for potential like disrupt, you know, uh, dystopian trajectories as well. And I go into that in the book. But these individuals are really, really important because if, say, you've got a five 500 person or a thousand person company and everyone's considering our futures, then we're just going to be on the right trajectory going forward. And, and as I said, you know, more profit, you know, more growth. Right. And people are just going to really get excited about, you know, what that company's got to offer. Well, and it, it makes me laugh as you're saying that, because I give this feedback all the time to the leaders at the top, like go out in the trenches and ask the questions and hear what right. they have to say, because they start to become removed and they become so hyper-focused, like you said, on the profit piece that they're missing 
some really good information that they can't, they're not getting exposure in the same way. They're, ra- they're too removed from it as they get up there. I worked with a, a large airline in the UK a few years ago and uh, day one of this project, I spent about 16 weeks um, doing this analysis. Well, did, I mean, this is strategy work. This isn't futures work that I did with them, <clears throat> but it's like the beginning of futures thinking because there's road mapping and whatever. And I sat down with the new project director. It was part of the business. It was hemorrhaging money. And it was a it was a it was a technology development operation with testers and developers and all sorts of people. And we sat there, and I was sat sat in a room with people. It's like, okay, tell me, tell me how everything works. And it's like, this is the role of developers and whatever. It's like, okay, who owns this data? Who owns that data? You start to see, you know, some of the cracks in the system. And I was like, okay, um, where are your developers based? They're like, okay, they're they're in a they're they're not in this building. They're in a building four miles down the road. It's like, okay, cool. Where are your testers? They're like, oh no, no, they're they're in this building and they're in that wing over there. I'm like, so your developers and your testers aren't in the same building. I said, one of your problems is you've got multiple, multiple, <laughs> multiple rounds of test of development test. It's breaking. You're hemorrhaging money. And I was like, can we just put them in the same room? <laughs> and, and and it was like a light bulb moment. And because I was working with this fantastic guy called Alistair, and he was like, yeah. And we fixed half of their problems in 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 about two weeks wow just because they weren't talking to each other you know humans don't always and and this is there was no slack and there was no you know like there there was a rudimentary messenger but that's not how it worked and uh some sometimes you know structurally how we work today we're just not looking at at short-term uh um short-term benefits within our organizations now on the flip side longer-term benefits of what you can deliver in 10 20 30 50 years that's when you go into it's a little bit marketing and a little bit creativity like the shareholders the people that believe in us as a company what are they going to believe they don't care about your three-month or or three-year plan sure they they pay attention to it because they're expecting you know return on 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 their investment but really, they they want to be sold a vision of 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 our futures, and uh, we're seeing more and more organisations step up. But you know, back to the individual, it's the individuals in an organisation that when people speak to them out in the real world, you can tell someone that's been excited about you know creating something that's going to be important for humanity versus someone that takes home a paycheck. And you can see those ones who were in the first group, and they're so passionate in sharing, and they don't feel like they have a voice, and it's not heard. Exactly. Exactly. It's like we're all part of the same story, right? So I'm sure you get this question a lot and everyone's wanting to predict future of work, future of work. Yeah. Where do you see it going, Nick? Um, and I know, of course, but you know, you, you're in this place and you're working with a lot of different organizations. So when yeah. you start to see where you see the future of work going, what what comes up for you? Yeah, it's interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, I called one of my clients and like all of my speaking disappeared. And I was like, great. And I just bought a house. My my partner was pregnant. Uh, and I was sat, great sat, timing, great sat timing. where I am now. I've got a much fancier studio now. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, what am I going to do? And I reached out. And um, some of the early work I did in the pandemic was to to look at, you know, future of work, what was going to happen, likely trajectories, and then some sort of societal tensions as, as well. A lot of people in future of work are thinking, hey, you know, what techni- what technologies do we need and how can we, you know, support people, whatever. But really, there, there were some fundamentals around 
you know, there was already a challenge with people feeling isolated and alone, even if they're in an organization. There was already a challenge with collaboration and teamwork and whatever. So we, we've got these cultural artifacts that have come after the pandemic and still live with us around, you know, hybridized work, um, new platforms where we can collaborate, but also autonomy and trust. And whereas like the autonomy and trust haven't hadn't been things that had been really considered at a deep level but also you know support for mental health challenges or you know spending a decent amount of money on a chair for your person when they're sat at their desk at home you know some of these basics so it's interesting the future works some people be like the metaverse and this platform virtual you know virtual gatherings and it's you know technologies come and go and moment moments pass and it comes back down to what do we need to do to work together? How can we be respectful of each other's space? You know, in terms of dragging someone through like eight Zoom meetings in a day is going to just kill their brain. Uh, and, um, they, there's studies that have shown like how stressed your brain gets without a break. How can you sort of balance things out? You know, the the, the future of work is very much like it always used to be. But when we've now got this added problem of people are, are isolated and some people like that, but we still have to take care of everyone in, in a much different way. And I work with some some very large companies and they put in like policies around, you know, people that were living at home on their own and what they needed in support was different. How you can actually create, you know, togetherness, how you can create trust. I think trust has been wildly under under considered uh, with, with regards to the, fu- the future of work. Uh, and also, you know, knowing what we're doing, productivity is kind of a misnomer. It's like it's made us more productive. It's like we're just we're just we just seemingly productive because we're just doing more and more hours. We don't know when 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 it's work time and when it's home time because home and work are in the same place. Right. So um, I am excited for, about new ways of working. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about things like th- things like three, two rhythms. So like. Um, three three days in the office and two days at home. Three days in the office to be collaborative and to design and be strategic to do futures work potentially, and two days at home to do you know writing up and doing you know sort of the graph that you can do on your own. That's where it gets really interesting to me, right? Yeah, it's it's been so interesting. I, I talk a lot about the pandemic, how it's been there's a silver lining, right? There are things where I can't tell you how many organizations I would talk to before. No, people can't work from home. I don't trust them. They're going to do laundry and errands all day. The list would go on, which immediately I would go to, okay, so lack of trust, like, listen, they could be scrolling on Facebook when they're at work doesn't mean that they're doing work. It was so interesting when that got that started to be dismissed and recognizing that that's not actually true. I think what you're saying around the mental health piece is incredible important because it those lines have been blurred. I talk all the time about the boundaries piece because what happens is we've got lots of challenges with burnout because people are not only do they on their own are feeling like they need to be available all the time, but there is expectations from mm. the organization constantly being available. And to speak to what you're saying in terms of creativity and innovation, burnt out people can't they they're not going to have the resources available to be tapping into innovation and creativity and so i see so many and that's what i loved about your book too because when you start to look in the futures i think sometimes people i was talking to a client the other day and they're like i i don't even want to think about the future or my my kids and because it's done for them like it's all bad it's doom and gloom i'm like really like i see it so differently and it doesn't mean that as an optimist i'm not being a realist of course right. we can't 
but I loved that you were approaching it. Like there's lots of great things and possibilities that are here as well and yeah. opportunities to make some very profound changes as well. You know, when I chat to clients, I'm always asked, you know, can you do a motivational um, keynote, you know, positive futures? Like, sure. Um, I'm a realist as well. So we have to frame it. You know, we have to frame our opportunity. And, you know, we're, we're <laughs> I, I generally start keynotes by saying, you know, we're 300 years into an industrial revolution. And we're on life support. And that generally wakes the room up and it's like, you know, what's going on? It's like we're constantly upgrading the systems around me, working out how to keep the lights on, how, how you know, water, energy, food and waste and all of these things before we even get to work. And but I also remind them that futurists can help you frame opportunities in a completely different way. And that ultimately, you know, futurists are uh, hope engineers. And that sort of resonates with people. Yeah. And they start realizing that, you know, you have to have a hope that things are going to get better. I'm a father of a two and a half year old. And uh, people ask me, it's like, as a futurist, you know, how has he inspired your work? It's like, well, I hope he's going to be part of the solution in, in, in our futures. He's also like the person I need to look out, out for because, you know, in, in 50 years time and when he's 52, very similar age I am now, I'm going to be gone and he's going to be left with a planet that's going to be uh, either thriving or, or desperately trying to survive, right? So so it sort of frames things and adds an urgency. I, I tend to also lean into some like, you know, for, like some indigenous thinking as well. The Iroquois had this idea, the seventh generation thinking. What you do today resonates through, you know, the next 500 plus years. So choose wisely, right? So I sort of remind clients about that. And when we talk about sustainability beyond ESG and the games that are played around that, we, we really have to think about, you know, way beyond our lifetimes and even beyond the lifetimes of our children, how we can create a better world today that's going to still be here in hundreds of years time. Yeah. And that reminds me when it comes to like future consciousness. And then when you were talking about when you were speaking with organizations in terms of making moral, ethical, conscious decisions, you know, what are, there's going to be leaders that are listening to this right now. And, and it's an opportunity for them to take a step back and make more sustainable decisions. Yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying, and it's so aligned with what I say in terms of, you know, create a people first organization. And then it does lead always, always the stats always always show that when you're doing people first, that it does result in profit. And I think sometimes people misinterpret people first, meaning that, oh, we're kind and empathetic and there's no structure and there's no accountability. Absolutely not. That's not what being people first is, mm. but it's a lens and how you're approaching your decisions. And so I'm curious from your end, when it comes to being making sustainable decisions as an organization and making sure that moral compass and ethical compass is involved in what does that look like that's a really you know it, that that's one of the biggest challenges i mean we, we've got a world of regulation i mean i've got a partner that works in, in uh in the corporate world and and also not-for-profit and and she says people will be motivated when regulations are, are thrust in front of you and you have to you know you know work within those boundaries and that's some of the problem with how we think about sustainability we're doing pretty good in terms of climate change it's like okay we could do something about climate change great but we don't think about novel entities so the amount of plastic and waste that's going into the world we don't think about um, the you know the sort of the the end of uh, elements of biodiversity, uh, extinction of, of of certain certain plants and 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 animals, and we. So, what we have to do, <laughs> we have to really broaden our, our scope of understanding our impact in the world, and 
and actually step up with a, a true responsibility. One of the biggest and most heinous things I think spoken about right now is net zero. It just means that you've got a balance sheet of of you know pollution out and credits in, and it's it's like so counterproductive to what we're trying to do, right? I'm also trying to work with a number of fossil fuel companies to say, okay, once your business is over, what are you going to do, right? And uh, and it's a very tough conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so it's a really tough conversation to have, and um, I, that's the sharp end of the work. You know, futurism is activism as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you create, because as you're talking about that, it's reminding me, I, I do a lot of conversations on this podcast around DEI and belonging work. And it's the same thing around creating safety and psychological safety to have the important, uh, difficult conversations. Um, what do you think helps to create that? So there's a space so you can have those difficult conversations and take action, right? Not just stay in this well, it's a nice to have, and we'd like to do that, but we can't right. because all of that. The, the trouble is those those people are tolerated that sort of, you know, well, you know, you know, um, excuse, excuse, because they, they live in homogenous in environments where there's kind of a bunch of people that are exactly like themselves. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, yes, Greg. Uh, yeah, 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 totally, totally, you know, harumph, harumph, whatever. Um, you have to have a lot of different kinds of people at the table. You know, we talk about design thinking, diversity in the room and a whole bunch of different perspectives. I was at a conference a few years ago and uh, I was moderating a panel on innovation. It was going really well. And I was talking about the importance of exactly this, this, this level of diversity of age and, 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 and different kinds of people in the room. And I, I looked out to 350 people and I said, OK, how many people invite the elders from their community? So people that have retired that are incredibly wise and uh, have lived there, been there, seen that, got a different perspective, probably incredibly honest at the table for design meetings, you know, board meetings, you know, consultations. One person put a hand up at the front. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, how many people invite kids in? You know, sort of teenage kids that have, you know, learned a bit about the world, have got an opinion, they're not afraid to, to share it. Same person put a hand up. No one else, 350 people. I was like, who do you work with? She goes, I work with the First Nations. And we understand that everyone has to be part of the process. And that's it. You know, it, 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 we, we, we're so stunted in, in our thinking in organizations that, you know, we've got great big salaries and a nice car and we make decisions and we go home on a Friday and sleep well, or go and have cocktails with friends. Um, but we're, we're kind of not getting it right in terms of engagement i actually think some of the organizations i've worked with have been fantastic have really invited people in to have the conversations have listened to them and done something about them i, I spoke at a school board um recently like sort of last summer and they they had these smart kids from the sixth grade and um, what a sixth grade in the uk i'm um, sort of older kids say about 16 to 18 year olds sharing their ideas about what would happen you know in you know in a better designed educational system and i stood i stood there watching it i stood up on the podium and i got i was speaking about future work and i said how many people are actually going to do anything about what those kids said mm. i said you're not going to do anything mm. this is this is all window dressing Right. And so I this 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 is sort of my joke about, you know, I'm the guy that would normally get fired. Right. 
but it's true and it resonated you know it's like what are you doing to capture that and to do something to keep them involved you know it's it, it's so important and that that you know look i'm a cis, cis het white guy so i'm not diverse how, how do we um create a platform and a door that's open for everyone in the room and let them speak first <laughs> i'm just here to catch catch notes and to listen to people and to learn from people right yeah, I think it's so important what you're saying. And what do you think? Um, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking as you're talking about this, what do you think behaviorally are happening in those organizations that are being more open and flexible? I mean, at that conference, it was one person, but hopefully yeah. there's more people who are starting to do that. Do you think it's a level of humility? Is it a level of openness? Is it a level of, to me, when I start to think about social consciousness and social responsibility it's not me or i but it's this yeah. lens of we and you're contributing to something much bigger than yourself but what else do you think is happening in terms of behaviors yeah i mean i always say that nostalgia is the enemy of, of good futures thinking we're like sort of really grounded in all the good old days and also our egos like yes, on a personal ego level for sure yes you know how do how do we you know how do we really break down these egotistical boundaries that sort of are, are you know they're they're invisible but they're there how how can we break through our bias you know our confirmation bias you know you know what we expect and what we want negativity bias is like never going to work that way whatever how can we you know, fight against them i think you hit it on the head humility humility and i was once told an incredible piece of information it's like the ceo is the loneliest person in the company it's like you should not you can you should be able to sit down next to the ceo and have lunch and a cup of coffee and just chat to them about whatever you know um, and we we've had this like almost this hierarchical world of fear around well you know executives and you know or you know places where they eat and we eat or whatever let, let's just break that down. Um, and some of this is structural, but really it, it's in the mindset of the organization. We we hear a lot of organizations, you know, with, we've got flat structures and people are empowered. And it's like, okay, how much are people empowered? How much do you reward them? And how much do you trust them? Um, organizations that really do well. And, you know, they're few and far between uh, really do have, you know, a lack of hierarchy and a lot of empowerment. Um, I mean, we're seeing this big, thing happening right now and all the tech companies laying off all the people they're just equalizing after having hired so many people during the pandemic but you know when you when you go to the private forums you hear what people have to say they weren't trusted the organization was saying that they were good and open egalitarian and they're not you know so uh it's interesting to sort of see that you know what's promised on the surface and you know we're a family is sort of very different inside and it's like literally nose to the grindstone how can we sell more widgets yeah and it feels like when I, i'm always someone who's like solutions and what do we do to change this and right. um i i feel like it's everyone has to do their own work like they have to figure out like their inner work and understand how ego is operating and what it looks like because i think at our core we all have that level of compassion and want to connect human right. to human but we have to um strip away some of that conditioning and persona and to use Brene Brown's where she'd say armor up, like all of that kind of stuff that's actually to the detriment of our planet, yeah. to our organizations, and really to all of humanity. Yeah. I mean, multi-generational trauma is probably yes. the largest 
challenge that we have in the world i've done tons of work around it personally i'm part of a group that that we support each other we work with each other i've got a life coach and a business coach that we still work on that part more than anything else right you know rather than a business plan we work on you know those those subconscious memories from when i was a kid and the challenges i've got today right limiting beliefs and otherwise and that that's really really important i i i would love to see more organizations um actively addressing you know mental health challenges again back to the beginning of the pandemic that was one of the big outcomes from this futures work that i did with this one client of very not 166 180,000 employees worldwide and it was like you know what everything's going to stem from the mental wellness of that individual being able to perform their duties right yeah because when you think of the mental well-being like ultimately with what i hear you saying i I also have multiple coaches for that reason doing all this somatic because i think generational i even know you know parents who are germany and poland and during the war i I can feel like there's stuff there's there's residue for that but for sure um, right and then from the mental health perspective and you spoke to a little things uh, quite a few things around this too in terms of technology that technology is good and technology also has a dark side right and that dark side with you being on 24 7 that people are not getting that same time in nature and stillness and a way where they can connect from themselves and hear that voice and all of this kind of stuff that if you don't, again, organizations creating space to do this and at the individual level, um, investing in themselves in that way to be able to like, they deserve it. And so I hear you saying, and thank you for sharing because, you know, there might be another person hearing this podcast through hearing you uh, share that Nick is like, Oh, if Nick does that, and if he works with a coach and he's doing his work and maybe I can do that. It's almost like, cause there's a level of permission that it's okay to get help with all of the mental health. You're not supposed to go at it alone. Yeah. And anxiety and pressure are not fuel for creativity in, right. in good business. And that's sort of a misnomer. It's like, you know, my pain delivers inspiration. <laughs> it's like great. If you're a musician and great songs and whatever, but you know what, those people, once they've gone through the work and, and they come out the other side, you know, alleviated from the challenges and the memories that they've had that they've been carrying around for so long. And they realize that actually, you know, things get supercharged. We, we could do an entire other conversation about just that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm just even thinking of some of those singers who said they stopped drinking alcohol and they actually got access to so much creativity and they thought they needed to get it from there. And it's actually like, no, when they were taking care of themselves, they were able to tap into a whole other part of themselves. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, I, I knew that we would have so much to talk about, but I, as we start to wrap up, um, Nicholas, I'd love to give you an opportunity to share whatever is showing up for you in terms of final thoughts. Showing up final thoughts. Um, I mean, futurism is activism. Like we, we really have to stand up and have a, have a voice. And um, we, we live in a world of, of good information, misinformation and everything in between. We, we, we live in a world where there are difficult people to deal with and it, we can, we should listen to them. And we, we don't need to bargain with them. Um, listen to them, like take it on board, work out the tensions and then just ask them if they're okay. <laughs> and then you know it's always good to say you know what, what are your hopes for you know the next 20 to 30 years because it's interesting once you start pushing out those horizons people start to really suspend you know their, their current beliefs and they try and work out you know 
what they want to be. They almost regress a little bit. And uh, I think, you know, that's that's a nice little final thought. You know, be an activist, listen to people and maybe change their mind a little bit through their own uh, consideration of our futures. Such good advice. Um, where can people learn more about you? And of course, your book that has just launched. Yeah. So uh, Facing Our Futures, uh, you can you can look look for that in all of all of the good bookstores, independent bookstores first, obviously. Uh, you can find that online in most places. Uh, so so do go and check that out. I'd love for you to read it. You can go to nicholasbabington.com. You can go to futurist.com, which is uh, where me and the think tank that I work with are. Lots of articles, lots of videos, lots of good stuff to see. I'm, I'm all over the internet so youtube and twitter a little bit less so on twitter these days um i'm very active on linkedin follow me on linkedin get involved in the conversations there's a there's a lovely little community brewing there nice uh nick thank you so much for being here today thank you thanks i've really enjoyed the conversation me too and i will have all additional information on nick in the show notes um he would love to hear from you. As always, I love to hear from you too. Reach out on LinkedIn or all of the socials and follow us on Inspirational Leadership on the website, kristenharcourt.com. And wherever you are in the world, I'm saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, sending tons of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.